So this evening we are looking at Psalm 131, beginning in verse 1. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. This psalm is actually one of my favorite psalms. And I like reading it and having people ask, well, why is this psalm one of your favorite psalms? This is kind of a strange psalm. And on the surface, it is. But I want to start out with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He seems to capture some of what this psalm is saying. He said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Because what this psalm is about is about humility. David is saying that he is humble before God. Humility stretches throughout this whole psalm. And though it does stretch throughout the entire psalm, it's not ultimately the point of it. Yes, we are to be humble, but David is leading us to something else here. He's not simply calling us to be humble. The fact is, pride is one of the sins that stretches throughout the whole human race that is and has been one of the most divisive that has caused the first sin in the garden, that caused the sin of Satan, and that continues to stretch in throughout all of what we do, is pride. We see it in our culture. You can look at athletes, celebrities, politicians. There's one thing they all, or most of them, have in common, and that is pride, where they are serving themselves. This sin is so devious that David has to fight against this his whole life. And what we see in this psalm is a most likely older David who is saying he has learned humility. He has learned how to stand before God. And this is what we ourselves are after. So many of our problems in this world do stem from pride. I was thinking of an example for it, and I thought of a lot of marital problems. In marriage, it's a covenant that will only work if two people love self-sacrificially and love the other spouse more than that they love themselves. And yet, if they don't do that, there's a lot of problems that ensue. I was thinking of this, and though I am not married, I've heard some of the examples of a wife who gets home and finds the dishes unwashed and thinks, what's with my husband? He doesn't love me. He should have thought of this. He should have washed these dishes. Meanwhile, the husband gets home and says, there's no dinner. What's going on? Both of this is because we seem to be serving ourselves a kind of pride that is seeking the, the top position as our, for ourselves. That is what we want. So this psalm is very important and one that I think is very applicable to us. Charles Spurgeon said that this psalm is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It shows years of wisdom. It takes God's will and provides it in three simple verses, though on the surface, somewhat odd to read. Ultimately, what this psalm shows us, 
And if we could capture this psalm in one sentence or statement, it would be that a humble trust leads to a firm hope. As I said earlier, we're not just being called to be humble in this psalm, we're called to go somewhere. There's a point. And ultimately, it's to trust in God as our hope. And we'll see how we get there. I was listening to a sermon from Stephen Lawson. I don't know how many of you would recognize him, but he's, he's on the radio. And this psalm, he's structured into three points. As humility before God, hush before God, and hope in God. And I'm going to steal his points and use them this evening. I thought they fit very well. So the first point corresponds to the first verse. It's humility before God. Verse 1 says, My heart is not proud. O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. What David is saying, yes, is that he's not proud, but this reference to the eyes has the idea of someone who had been looking up at God's position and desiring that for themselves. In a sense, looking at a a place that doesn't belong to you and wanting that, to be in control, to look at what is above us. That's the reference here to my eyes are not haughty, or it could be translated raised too high. Looking at God's position and saying, I don't necessarily like what's going on here, God. Let me take control. Let me have the, the responsibilities. Let me orchestrate and run my own life. And you know, this is so difficult for us. Though we may not think of it as, well, we aren't seeking to supplant God. But what are we doing when we doubt him? And when we are anxious and afraid? God is a sovereign God and he is in control and he has planned everything. And if we don't like that, if we don't want that, then we are basically telling God, I want to be in your place. I want to be in your position so that I can run my own life. And David is saying that he is not doing that. David is saying his eyes are not raised too high. This verse goes on to say that I do not occupy or I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And there are three applications to this verse. First, David is saying that he does not concern himself with things to glorify his name. In other words, he shows a lack of selfish ambition. He's not in it for himself. He's not concerning himself with great great matters to prop himself up. He's not self-serving and self-seeking. Now this doesn't mean, as one commentator said, David doesn't mean that trying to be your best or working to achieve the most for God and his glory is wrong. It is not wrong. It is right. What is wrong is the ambition to get everything we can get for ourselves at whatever cost for our own glory, which is what our civilization fervently teaches us to do. David is recognizing that God is on his throne and he doesn't belong there. And so he is not raising his eyes to take the throne down or to put himself on the throne. The second application of this verse is to realize that we have no business questioning the plan of God. This is one of my favorite verses, and I think it can provide us with a lot of comfort. Because when you realize that we have no business 
questioning God's plan. It provides us a peace to simply live our lives day by day trusting in Him. We don't need to worry what ultimately is going to happen. And this is very hard to say when we live in this broken life. And we all have it. The loss of loved ones, the loss of job, the loss of health, and what is the future going to hold? What am I going to do? And it's very natural for us as fallen man to question God and to want a different plan. But we will not change the outcome. We cannot. God is sovereign. And we shouldn't resign ourselves to this saying, oh, well, God is sovereign, so I guess I'll just have to live my life this way. I guess I'll just have to accept it. That's not what's going on. God promises us that everything that happens is for his glory, yes, but also for our good. Though it may not seem like it at the time, though we may never feel like that on this earth, To question why God is doing something is not always beneficial and is actually a question that we shouldn't necessarily ask. You think of the example of Job, who had so much just trials in this life, and he asked God, why? Why are you doing these things? And you know what? If you read the book, throughout the whole book, God never answers him. We know, because we saw in the beginning, that Job is actually showing God's glory and that he, there is a cosmic struggle going on between Satan and God. And God is saying, Job will not curse me. Job will keep the faith. All of the heavenly hosts are watching Job as he is this great witness for God, but he doesn't know that. And God never tells him that. The answer God gives him is that I am in control. I am on the throne. And that is enough for Job. It also should be enough for us. To question the plan of God and to question his ways is to question what goes beyond us, what this psalm calls too great and too marvelous for us. These matters are so far beyond what we can comprehend that we can't question them. Another example is of Johnny Erickson Tata. I would assume most of you know who she is, but she's a woman who, as a young lady, was diving into the water and became paralyzed and then had to live a life dependent on others, a life of pain, being stuck. At one point, she didn't want to live anymore. And yet, through that, God worked in her life, and she has become a great witness and has helped so many Christians. Look what God can do through something that none of us would want to face, that none of us would ever want to go through, and yet, this is what God's plan was. Are not his ways marvelous? They are marvelous because they come through trials. Not to put a stamp on it and to say trials aren't anything. You should just go through life with an attitude of God's in control. No, it's hard. And that's not what David is saying here. What he is saying is the fundamental philosophy that God is in control and we do not, we do not question that. We submit to it. And so you see again the humility that undergirds the whole psalm. It takes humility to trust that. It takes humility to not question God. An example or in a passage, James, in the book of James, addresses those who do such things. 
James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And on one hand, this sounds like, okay, this is a command for us to follow, and that's true. But this is comforting. This is how we live our lives in this broken world. That there is a reason for it. There is a reason for what's happening. There is a reason for your loss of job. There is a reason for your loved one who died. We may not know it now, but there is one. Because God's ways are marvelous. We must never meddle in God's marvelous ways. In fact, I've used this verse and tried to memorize it so that every time I am afraid or I'm thinking about the future, I'd say, no, God's ways are too wondrous, too marvelous for me. I need to just focus on what the task is at hand and what he has given me today to do. That is what we are called to do as Christians. The third application of this verse David is not trying to achieve more than God ever intended for him. He is not overachieving. His aspirations in life go only so far as what God has designed for him. So often we spend our lives wanting more, more praise, more power, more money, more comfort, more health. None of them necessarily bad in themselves, but when we seek that as our ultimate goal, you are overachieving. And seeking things that are too great, too marvelous for you. To seek power beyond what you should have is to seek something where God is. To seek God's throne, which is again going back to verse 1. David is not raising his eyes to God's throne. He's not seeking to sit in God's place. The other thing we think of is that God needs us in his plan. And this is true. God has ordained us to fulfill his will, to go out and to act. The problem is is that when we become proud in our gifts, we are undermining what God is actually doing and calling us to. We think we are most useful to God when we are using our gifts. This is not actually the case. The way you are most useful to God in his plan is to be humble and to serve him in that. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I would say this is what David is doing in this psalm. He is humbling himself before God, casting his cares before God, and trusting in God. Again, as we're leading to, we'll see it in greater depth in the following moments, but this psalm is that a humble trust leads to a firm hope. So that is the first point of the sermon, humility before God. But then we move to verse 2, and the second point, which is hush before God. Verse 2 begins, But I have stilled and quieted my soul. And he provides an illustration of what this looks like. 
And this is where, when you read it, the psalm sounds very strange. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And obviously the picture here is of an unweaned child who is constantly fussing and constantly wanting the nourishment from its mother. A, young, a newborn baby is very hard to please, as I think we would all know and realize. And that is what he is imaging, that what we are like when we do question God, when we do doubt his plan, we are like a baby. We are like a baby who is unweaned, saying, God, what are you doing? I'll do this, but tell me first why you're doing this. Give me an explanation, and then I'll follow your will. This is what David is speaking of, as a child that cries. What he is saying, though, is that he is not this way. That he is weaned, and what this means is a child who can rest. Who can rest in the care of his mother's arms. Who can trust. Who is still. Are not these what we desire in our own lives? To be like a weaned child that no longer is fussing around, that is no longer constantly in need of care, but trusts. And this really does provide a good picture of what we can be like. Just infants that are crying. The fact is, is it isn't true trust in God if we keep asking God, what are you doing here? True trust is not commanding God or directing Him or checking in on Him complaining before him. Rather, we, still, we are still before God, not, not dictating to God and giving him the solution to our problems. But then the question is, how do we calm ourselves? How do we be this weaned child? Do we just not do anything? Is this what this psalm is saying? Just sit with no action? And I don't believe that that's what David is saying here. The hushness, the silence before God, comes in being silent before his word. Obeying that, following that. The verse is telling us to be silent before God's word and to obey it. It's when we quit our constant crying and listen to God speak that we do find his will for our lives. That we do find our security and our reason to trust. And as the psalm is leading to, our reason to hope. It's in God's word. A good illustration of this, of being silent before God. One minister tells the story of a father and a son. The father was going to pick up his son at an appointed destination. And so the son was there, waiting for the father to come and pick him up. But the father didn't come, and minutes stretched out into hours. And it was light when he was waiting, but then it was dark. And the son was still wondering, where's my dad? Unknown to the child was that the dad had car trouble. And being in the time before cell phones, the father was not able to contact his son. And once the father had the car fixed and went and picked up his son, and the son climbed into the car, his father asked him, were you afraid? And his son said, no. You said you'd come and pick me up. And I knew you would. So I waited until you did. Isn't this the way we should live our lives? Trusting in God's plan? He is not some earthly father who has to fix a car to keep his word. 
He is completely sovereign and in control of us and everything that happens. Should we not also be able to trust him and to be hushed before him? The child could have lived, or that lived his life, but the child could have sat there waiting for the father and been afraid and anxious, questioning, worrying. But you know what wasn't going to change? The end outcome is that the father was coming to pick him up the whole time. The only difference was the manner in which the son sat and waited. And this is true as we live our life. God's will will be done, and that is a wonderful thing. And we take great comfort in that. And we can then sit silent waiting for him to do that. Waiting for our father to come and pick us up. Knowing that he will do so. Trusting that. I just think that that story really shows what this psalm is talking about. Really putting it all together as one illustration. The third point and the third verse in this message is hope in God. So we had humility before God, hush before God, and now a hope in God. Verse 3 says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. We have hope because we trust in God. Remember, a humble trust leads to a firm hope. You need humility to trust God. You need to be silent before Him to trust Him. And you need to trust in Him with a hope. This hope that this verse is talking about is not some hope that... We we often use hope as a word that we want something to happen. You know, like we could all hope that we'll walk outside of church and find $1,000 on the ground, but none of us would expect that. We could hope for it, but it's not sure... This is not the way we hope in God. The way we hope in God, and this is where I got trust from it, the way we hope in God is with a trust. That we believe him. That we know he will carry out his will. It's a hope with an optimism. The Hebrew word translated as hope here has the idea of waiting, waiting with expectation. So you could say, this verse could be saying, O Israel, wait for the Lord. Wait for him to do his will. And I would then add, as I've already said, trust in him to do his will. Trust in your heavenly Father. And so we wait for our dad to come and pick us up. Even though it may be getting dark out in our lives, even though we might not have any idea of why God is doing what he is, that's how we are called to live. And that's why I find this psalm to be my favorite and one of the most comforting is when you get into it. We aren't supposed to be living our lives as God. We are to be living our lives as his sons and daughters, trusting in him. If we ended here, though, we would do a disservice to this psalm because this psalm isn't simply saying, go out, trust God. It's not ending, go and do likewise. Because we have seen Christ come. And if we don't read this psalm in light of the fact that Jesus has come, we do it a profound disservice. What we see is that Jesus displayed perfectly what this psalm is talking about. Jesus did not question the will of his Father. 
but was content to trust in him. Jesus placed his hope in the Father and waited for his Father's will to be done. And I think the best example of this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke twenty-two forty-two says, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see humility there. And this is how the incarnation and Jesus becoming a man is so profound that Jesus, God himself, humbled himself. Humbled himself. Silenced himself. And also hoped in the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. A trust and a hope from Jesus, the Son of God. The one who had the most exalted position. When we look up, we see, our eyes are not raised too high. That's what the psalm says. But Jesus had that. Jesus was there. And yet to humble himself and come down to our level? To place himself in a world of misery, knowing that through it he would be forsaken by the Father and killed, crucified. And in that, being a living hell itself. And yet he did that. He humbled himself. He silenced himself. One passage we read last week, Sunday evening, was Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I want to read that again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to stop right there. And here's what we see. Those who humble themselves, God exalts. As Philippians goes on, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the way Jesus achieved this was through humility and suffering. It wasn't through coming down and with divine power enacting everything that he could have done. It was by living as David did. Could we not see Jesus say, telling the Father the same thing? That he's not, his eyes are not raised too high? He is like a weaned child. He hopes in the Father. Christ is not merely our example to follow, however. We should. But he's not just that. The fact is, Jesus is our hope. For David to say to Israel, O Israel, hope in the Lord... Well, that's profound, that's wonderful. Yes, they had every reason to hope in the Lord. But how much more reason do we have who have seen Christ come? Who have seen Jesus, God in flesh, who did our end of the bargain. It was Jesus who humbled, hushed, and silenced himself, who trusted in God on our behalf. We could never humble ourselves enough. We could never be silent enough before God. We could never trust in his word enough, but Jesus did on our behalf. 
And this is why we see so much more richness when we read this psalm in light of what the New Testament has declared, what the New Testament shows. I'm not trying to say that Psalm 131 was looked at as a prophetic utterance of what Jesus would be. Simply trying to say that this is what the man of God and the woman of God is supposed to be, and this is how Jesus lived. This is what Jesus enacted. Christ has already accomplished all that we could ever need for our salvation. And this is why we have every reason to hope then in him. He's done it. It's accomplished, and we have it. Our hope is something to simply grasp what's been given to us and to just believe it, to trust it, to live with that comfort. But then to also live with the knowledge that we are called to live the same way Jesus did, to humble ourselves before God and not question him. Corey Ten Boom once said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And we can be humble and trust that. We can trust in God's perfect Son. And thus we can hope because we have seen our Savior. We have seen him come in the flesh. May we be able to echo the words of David. May we be able to say our hearts are not lifted up Our eyes are not raised too high. We do not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. But we have calmed and quieted our soul like a weaned child. O church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.